It may be invisible to some or ever present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of DC. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are. Welcome back to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of the human connection. I'm Bridget Stumpf, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Lindsay Silverberg. Hi, everybody. Today, we are thrilled to continue our exploration into vicarious trauma and unsung heroes in our communities. We are so grateful to be joined by a licensed mortician and an advocate, Janet McGee. Janet McGee is an instructor at the Mortuary Science Program at the University of Minnesota. She graduated from the University of Minnesota's School of Mortuary Science in 2002 and worked as a licensed mortician for six years. She then established herself in the banking world for almost a decade while obtaining her MBA. When her 22-month-old son, Ted, died tragically in 2016 from a furniture tip-over incident, she left her corporate career behind to advocate for furniture tip-over prevention. She played an integral role in forming Parents Against Tip-Overs in 2018, a 501c3 that advocates to end deadly TV and furniture tip-overs on children and currently serves as their director. Janet has served on the Advisory Council for Safe Kids Minnesota for several years and is the author of the children's book, Visiting Ted in Heaven. She is a Minnesota licensed mortician and a member of the National Funeral Directors Association. Janet, while you have experience as a mortician and within the field of funeral services, you've also spoken about your own experiences of trauma. Thank you so much for joining us today and being willing to share your story, insights, and hopes. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here, Janet. And just to give our listeners some context, we are embarking on this journey during season two of this podcast to really shine light on what we consider to be the hidden cracks and spaces where there are individuals really being with survivors of trauma, holding stories of trauma survivors and showing up for them in often unexpected ways. And the entire season really came about when Lindsay and I were talking about something that I had seen on the news after the Uvalde shooting. And it was a story that was covering how there were individually tailored caskets made for these kids for their funeral. And it was really just very briefly focusing on the person who took the time to essentially overnight develop these like incredibly intricate, personalized caskets for these kids. And I remember thinking at the time, like, wow, you know, we heard about the story once, we never heard about it again, but like how impactful that must have been on the team that was working to create that and really like create a way of remembering these kids in such a like personalized, intimate way and how much that had to have impacted them. And to me, the work that you do in the funeral services industry is one of the places of these unsung heroes that are intersecting with families, sometimes in their deepest, you know, hardest moments of their life, as you know. And I've shared on the show, um, we lost our first daughter. And when we took her to the funeral home, uh, we had a really unique experience. You know, after I delivered her, we got to be with her 
for a day. And when we took her to the funeral home, the woman that received her was just incredibly compassionate and just allowed us to be exactly what we needed to be in that space. That was probably really hard to take, to be honest. And I remember being like, wow, like what kind of training and education are these folks getting on? Like how to interact with people like me who have no idea what we're doing. And so this is for me, a very personal conversation around how do we humanize the work that you're doing? And in order to do that, Janet, I'd really love to hear more about this kind of original journey you had into the field. I know you stepped away when you went into banking, but kind of that first idea where you were like, this is the work I want to do. Tell us why you got into doing the mortuary services and really kind of what your goal was when you embarked on that original journey. Sure. Well, first, I want to say I'm sorry to hear about your daughter. I didn't realize that, but thank you for sharing that. Originally, I wanted to go into accounting, (laughs) and then I started taking some science classes in high school, and I loved biology and I loved chemistry. I don't know why, (laughs) but so I started thinking about maybe I wanted to go into more sciences. And as I got, you know, a little bit older and was in my senior year, I got pretty involved in my church. Like I was a Bible camp counselor and my mom was a social worker. So she was always pretty good at talking to us. And she said, you know, you should be an undertaker. And I was like, no, that's gross. I don't think I'll do that. (laughs) Typical like 17 year old response, right? But it kind of piqued my interest. And so I started looking into it and I realized, wow, like this is a profession. It is really unique. And there's so many different facets of this profession that most professions don't yeah. have. We have that business side, the accounting component, <laughs> the leadership management side. And then there is this science, this very strong science side. You know, we need to know embalming, restorative art, chemistry, microbiology, pathology, mm-hmm. anatomy, you know, all of that. And then, of course, religious studies and knowing what historically religions have done to celebrate their deceased and even the psychology and the grief side of things was really interesting to me because my mom had lost a daughter before I was born of pneumonia. She was only 13 months old and it happened like within a 12 hour span of time where she was sick and and died. And so my mom had gone through that. And so we were raised being very, very taking the, um, the traditional funeral was very serious to our family and commemorating the dead was very serious to our family. And the other, the fifth thing that I always talk about that I kind of was intrigued by was the cosmetology side of things. I didn't realize it at the time, but it is such a creative way to give back to people by being able to make their loved ones look beautiful again so that they can say goodbye one last time, especially if there was a trauma involved Yeah. so that the last memory that they have isn't the messiness of death. Wow. That's so beautiful. Like, I had no idea. I'm feeling like, gosh, I would love to do this. Like, the way you describe, like, I think for me, I'm really hearing you say that it's about creating a memorable experience for the family that's left behind. And like, how do we honor this beautiful life in a way that's really humanizing? Yes. And I can imagine... I don't know why, but that there are lots of opportunities to experience vicarious trauma, just not only in like the work you're describing and and the way the work is so diverse and requires different skills and tasks of you, but also just the different experiences you have with families and what they need and being able to show up and support them. You're going to take some of that on. I know you talked about leaving the field originally because of burnout to the extent you're comfortable, I'd love to sort of hear like, how did you experience that? And one, how did you have the self-awareness 
to acknowledge that like I'm being impacted and I need to leave for my own well-being. I think that's so unusual. And I'd love to hear about how you kind of came to that realization. Sure. Well, the first three years that I was a mortician, it was like adrenaline. You know, it was the excitement of a new career. It was, I'm ready to tackle life. I graduated college. I'm ready to give my everything to this profession. And as many of us who enter the field, we're extreme empaths. And we do this because we care for other people. And that is a beautiful thing that needs to be held very sacred. Because if you don't protect that, it will lead to burnout, which is what happens a lot. And so the first three years, I did not have children. And then I had my son. So the last three years I was in the profession, I was a mom, a single mom on top of having a call schedule and being on call every other night, every other weekend, having to line up daycare at the last minute. I remember one instance of like I had called eight people and nobody could take my son. And I had the police officers waiting at this house um, because someone had died at their house on a 4th of July and everybody was gone. And there's a lot of this job and parts of it that lead to compassion fatigue that people probably don't realize wears on you <laughs> as a mom, especially as any funeral director. So the last three years, I was thinking, what can I do to create a more stable life for my son? Because I am his sole provider. And I started reaching a point where I thought, I don't know if I can be a good mortician and a good mom at the same time with where I'm at. And because I can't give half to my son and half to my families, that's not fair for any of them. And it's not fair for me either, because then I feel guilty all the time. <laughs> and so what I ended up doing was I took a job in my hometown, which was great. I was going to be, my whole family lives within 10 miles of each other. So I was like, okay, I'm finally going to be back home. And the plus side was that I was in my hometown community, population like 700 people where I grew up. But the downside was I was in my hometown and I knew everybody. And now I'm the town undertaker. <laughs> that came with a set of challenges that I wasn't expecting on top of very bad cell phone coverage in the area, which made it really difficult to like go anywhere <laughs> um, with being on call all the time. But I do remember my first couple months on the job after I graduated and I was working on my internship it was a man who died by suicide and I went in to help with the removal. I don't want to get graphic, but we are picking up pieces of this gentleman and putting him all back together in a bag so that we can get him over to the medical examiner's office. And I remember thinking this family is going to come back to this house. I can't leave anything here. I got to really do my best at getting it. I'm 21 years old at this time. So it's pretty young. But I remember the police officers saying to my new boss, like, oh, you got a, you hired a tough cookie, you know, like she handled that pretty good. She jumped in and helped. And, and I remember it being kind of this normalized in the profession, like a, almost a pride for being able to just block it out and do your job. And that's through no fault of the police officers or my boss or anything. That's just how the culture was. And I actually don't think that's uncommon. I think we hear that in, you know, in, with police officers and firefighters, EMTs, all of those people that are, I think we're finally taking mental health more seriously in the professional world, which is so needed. But my point with sharing that is, aside from the initial, you okay, that was a lot. I didn't have a debriefing. I didn't have anyone saying, you just witnessed a lot. Do you need to talk about it? You know, I didn't have any of that because we just didn't do that. <laughs> and the reality is, you know, it's like death by a thousand cuts, right? Every time you're in these experiences, 
you block it out, you block it out, you block it out, and you develop coping mechanisms to get through it. And I think that coupled with my call schedule just really took a toll on me. And so I remember being six years in, I remember sitting and making arrangements with a a family and feeling very apathetic. Like I was surprised at how apathetic I felt. I was like, shed your tears, cry. I got to get my son from daycare. Like just kind of that whole like same shit, different day kind of feeling. It scared me a lot because I thought this is not who I am. (laughs) This is not what these families deserve. This is not what I deserve. This is not what my son deserves to be on my timeline because I have to be there for these families. Like this just isn't working. And that's kind of what led to my decision to say, I don't know what to do next because being a good embalmer doesn't really land me a job at a bank, (laughs) but what do I do? So that kind of led to me learning a lot about career transitions and transferable skills. And I mean, I'll say being a mortician lands you a lot of transferable skills. When I was asked, can you meet a deadline? (laughs) Well, yes, I can. (laughs) Are you an independent worker? Yes, I can. I work very independently in a lot of really tough, you know, in a lot of tough times. And so ultimately it, I think it prepared me to be successful in my job at the bank. Wow. Thank you for sharing all that. I think um, what I'm realizing is like just sort of the depth and breadth of your job as a mortician or undertaker. Like I wouldn't have thought that you had to go to the scene and like in some ways sort of confirms and expands for me the amount of vicarious trauma and the ways in which you have to show up in that moment. Then again, for the family, that has a lot of consequences and that's a lot to carry kind of day in and day out. We originally came across your story on the NFDA's podcast, A Brush with Death, and you shared the story about your son, Ted, and identified it as a traumatic event, obviously. And so for our listeners, could you share a little bit about this, like whatever you feel most comfortable talking about? Sure. So I left funeral service. I went into banking. So I was completely out of the funeral world for a good 14 years. In that time, I had met my then husband. We had Ted. Ted was born in 2014. And he was just such a sweet little boy. I didn't know that I was ever going to have more kids. So Ted was just a huge blessing to us. And what happened was that we came home from church on a Sunday morning. It was Valentine's Day of 2016. And I remember we got a little piece of chocolate um, at church on the way out. And I had given mine to Ted. So by the time I pulled up, minivan mom pulling up in the garage, I look back and Ted has chocolate smeared all over his face. And I'm like, I even remember feeling that thought of like, today is going to be a good day. Like, remember the small things in life, you know, like this is beautiful. So fast forward, we made him lunch, went to go put him down for a nap. So I was checking on him probably every 10 minutes or so, just, okay, Teddy, let's go back in, you know. And it got quiet in his room and I thought, okay, finally, he's falling asleep. So I went in to just uh, make sure to confirm that. And when I opened his door to his bedroom, I noticed his entire dresser had fallen forward. And it was so eerily quiet in there that I just knew he had to be under it. And I'm like simultaneously in my brain thinking, I didn't hear this fall. Like what is going, I mean, I was just shocked. So I lifted up this dresser and I started digging through this pile of drawers and clothes and finding Ted at the bottom of the pile purple, non-responsive. I started performing CPR. 
long story short, for a long time, that was like a bad movie that I couldn't stop replaying in my brain, which I think is a flashback, right? But it just was this loop. I would think about this probably 50 times a day over and over and over again. But today, after doing some EMDR therapy and some other things, I'm, I'm in a much better place to think about Teddy in such a positive way now. But it's still part of our story. And so we called 911 and got him to the hospital. And they had found a faint heartbeat at the hospital, but we were very quickly told that there was just nothing more that could be done. And so immediately the former mortician in me was like, did he die of asphyxiation? Did he die of a blunt force trauma? Like I just was very interested in what happened so that we could understand this. And um, we talked to the medical examiner that night and they called us to tell us that it was um, mechanical asphyxiation. So he basically couldn't breathe. He couldn't scream. He couldn't do anything when he was trapped under that dresser. I mean, of course, we thought this was like a freak accident. I mean, who would even guess this would happen? And so three days, four days after his death, I'm sitting on the floor in his bedroom. And we, of course, had a lot of people coming and going from the house to visit us. And my friend said, this wasn't an Ikea dresser, was it? And I said, it was, but I don't know what that has to do with anything. And so I Googled Ikea dresser deaths sitting on the floor in his bedroom. And the first thing that popped up was a picture of his dresser. And I found out that it had killed two other children two years ago. That was the day, just days after he died, that I learned what a tip over was. I didn't know what it was. So today I can say Ted was the eighth child out of 10 who died from an Ikea dresser that fell on him. But Ikea was not the problem. It was an industry-wide problem. Um, when I was looking at the statistics, it looked like of, of the dressers that we knew had killed children, only about 5% of them were Ikea dressers. So this was actually an industry-wide problem. And Ted's death led to the largest furniture recall in U.S. history when IKEA recalled 29 million dressers off the market in 2016 because they didn't meet safety standards. But the sad part was that they didn't have to because there was not a required safety standard. So the more that I started learning about this, I really felt like, man, I don't want to talk about this. I really don't. I want to just be alone, be with my family. But what happened was there was a day when I was like, it was just a, probably a week after he died. So all this is floating through my head. And I'm thinking, but can I be proud of the person staring back at me in the mirror if I don't say anything? What happens if I hear that this happens to someone else and then I didn't say anything? I don't feel right about that. And so I just felt this calling to say something, do something. And so... I formed a parent coalition. It started as a coalition, Parents Against Tipovers. I found lots of families from across the nation who had lost their children this way. Uh, what we've learned today, I can say, in since the year 2000 to 2020 or so, there's been well over 500 people who have died from tipover wow. TV and wow. furniture tipover deaths. And it's a problem that nobody really, it was kind of like the iceberg, right? You saw this little tiny story, but you didn't really see what was happening underneath because they didn't have a lot of data on it. And so we went to the furniture manufacturers, us parents, and said, the reason you don't have data on this is because we want to take an ax to that goddamn dresser. Like nobody's collecting this uh -huh. to give you your data. So directionally and anecdotally, you know what's happening and you're not doing anything. 
So we ended up almost becoming the data center a little bit. We, We were starting to become more prevalent on social media. And we became kind of this place, the safe place where families could talk to us about what happened. And we could empathize with them, like truly empathize with them. And also be that voice that says, don't do anything to that dresser. Hold on to it. Take a picture of the sticker Mm -hmm. and then have your brother-in-law or someone take it out of the house for you. But just don't do anything quite yet. And so through that, we were able to get more information. So what was happening is there were several manufacturers saying, you know, well, this isn't us. This is the other guys. We're the ones coming to these meetings. We're the ones showing up. And um, we were saying, but we have a sticker and a story that says something different. And these don't go reported because nobody knows what the CPSC is. <laughs> it's the Consumer Product you know, Safety Commission. They have a very small budget. And so I really learned some of the flaws within that system. Uh, IKEA came to us as parents. This is, we wanted them to do something and they're doing something. So we ended up working with them the Parents Against Tipovers parents for about two years working to pass the Sturdy Act, the Stop Tipovers of Unstable Risky Dressers on Youth Act, was passed in uh, last year in 2002. Oh, President Biden signed it into law. So that's kind of my story with the advocacy. And once I got this opportunity to teach at the University of Minnesota, I decided to go back and get my mortuary license. And I think I just felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. I think that God, the universe, whatever, whoever you call it, for me, it's God, wants me, gave me these experiences, not to punish me or hurt me, but to try to help me and other people through it. So I have become in the last year very passionate about giving back to the funeral industry. I've been on one side of it with seeing what I thought a good person, and I hear this over people who get burnt out by the profession and then they leave it. And I was on the other side when I was the family and I needed someone to step up and be there. And I had a funeral home that I believe was suffering from compassion fatigue, Mm. you know, with the fact that they didn't show up to the church on time. I didn't get to read Teddy his last, the books that I wanted to read him. They had the memorial folder wrong. They called me the wrong name (laughs) at the funeral service. And I'm not judging them because I've done all those things as a mortician by accident. Like we're human, we make mistakes. But I think it was that feeling of like, damn it, this was my turn. This was my turn to have somebody be there for me. I don't want to have to be in funeral director mode right now. But I think there is a need to protect mental health in this profession. I joke, but it's true. During COVID, you heard of all the unsung heroes in the healthcare profession, Yeah. right? Who talks about the mortician? We're a very ignored industry yeah. and we have so many good people in this industry who are doing the right thing every day by trying to take care of the deceased in this country. Yeah. And I joke that we had a pandemic and we still didn't get recognition. (laughs) There's that. Not all heroes wear capes. Um, But it's such a good point. Yeah. And a lot of funeral directors, they were so burnt out. We're still seeing the effects of that burnout because they had to incorporate technology very quickly. And you know, many of them were not equipped to do that. Their business changed. They could not hold services the way that they used to. The times changed. People were having to delay services much longer than ever before. So many things got disrupted. And of course, 
so many times in media, we hear the funeral director as being the bad guy or the one that's trying to take advantage. And in any profession, you always have those couple bad eggs. And it's unfortunate that they would leave a reputation like that for our entire industry, because most of those people sitting in your small town or your community are there because they have the best intentions and they're trying to help you, you know, as a family, like you experienced, Bridget. Yeah, it's so true. And you're bringing so much up for me, Janet. There's so much to unpack. And I think thing for me is this parallel world that we live in, working with survivors of trauma who've experienced crime. And I can't tell you how many times when they've made a decision about how they want to move forward, the North Star is often, I don't want someone else to get hurt. Like, it is such a motivating factor for how people transition what is the most deeply painful moments of their life into advocacy. And I'm just so honored that you were willing to like share with us, like, you know, what Ted sort of left, the inspiration he left for you to advocate for so many other people. And and what you're talking about is creating a community too, where other families can feel understood in that really unique type of loss. And I'll tell you as a parent myself, I'm like, I've never thought about this before. I'm a pretty hypervigilant parent in a lot of ways. And I think I'm learning something that was a real gap for me and really appreciate your willingness to, like you said, sort of aside maybe some of the fears that you had about, you know, owning this story and and allowing people other to learn from it and hopefully avoid that horrific tragedy that you had to experience as a family. So I'm really grateful for your work and your advocacy. I am also very curious about how you described the vantage point you were able to have being on the other side of someone providing those services through Ted's funeral and kind of the contrast and how it is awakening to us to see like, oh, I've done some of those things, right? There's some humility and being like, wow, I could really do this differently. Can you share with us, like, how has that duality that you've experienced changed how you show up as a funeral director now? Well, I'm not a practicing funeral director. I teach it, but I work closely with funeral homes and with mortuary science students and seeing both what I call being on both sides of the arrangement table has allowed me to kind of get have this perspective um, as a funeral director some of the challenges that we have and then also as a consumer and of course after advocating on the consumer side for so many years with the dressers seeing this consumer side where you see people thinking funerals are overpriced, funerals are, they're taking advantage of me. They have kind of this bad negative stereotype. And there's even a, even a little bit of a stereotype of this person's weird if this is what they want to do for a living. There's a little bit of that too. I see the disconnect so much more clearly now. I teach the students about overhead and in our accounting class. This is what it costs to keep our lights on at a funeral home. This is what it costs to pay a salary. This is what benefits are from a business perspective because I think it's so important for them to understand that because one of the questions they will be asked as a funeral director is why are funerals so expensive? Because we have someone on call 24 seven and because we're there when you need us and because We are trying to keep this small business running so that we can be here for our communities. We are seeing a rise of cremation. We're seeing natural organic reduction is now becoming legalized in seven states. We're seeing changes in the industry. And I just think we're in this opportunity bubble where we need to somehow 
bridge the industry side and the consumers together because I see the misunderstandings that they're having. Yeah. I mean, I think the the thing that keeps coming up for me is like, you have this unique experience. And as we think about the ways in which funeral directors, those involved um, in this industry and those in this field are being impacted by the families, I think because they're experiencing these deeply painful moments, you do have a lot of opportunity, I think, to help folks understand the ways in which you want to show up. What are some of the tools and resources that like as you're teaching young morticians going into the field, what are the tools and resources that you want them to understand and offer to create this sort of like trauma-informed experience for those seeking their services? Sure. First, I'll say it's difficult to teach this because we don't have a lot of data on it. I could teach from my experience. I can anecdotally teach stories I've heard, but the cold hard truth is we just don't have a lot of data and research that has been done in the funeral industry about compassion fatigue and burnout. There's some, there's a few little studies here and there, but we need to take this more seriously. (laughs) But what I do teach is we have our National Funeral Directors Association has this series that is focused on mental health support for morticians. So I show that to the students. I've focused a couple assignments on um, what's your purpose? Why are you here? What do you want to be here for? How do you want to contribute in this industry? I've had guest speakers come in to talk about owning your past so you can cultivate your future and kind of taking those all of those life experiences you've had so far before you came to mortuary school and learning about yourself so you know what your superpowers are that you're bringing to this profession and kind of just empowering them to, I call it summoning their inner mortician, finding that that reason why. Because the little bit of research that I've seen, there's one particular study that I had looked at and it tied for funeral workers, if they their passion and understanding their purpose in the job actually offset PTSD symptoms. So if they they had less of a propensity for developing it if they had a higher understanding of their purpose, like you're able to overlook some. So I thought that's directionally probably correct, but we just don't have enough data to like teach on it. I'm just trying to help get the students empowered and know what tools are out there. So take control of themselves so that they can bring their best self to our families that we serve. Wow. You are really just hit me in my heart today because I'm thinking about what a value add you are in the field to give this language to students like coming into the profession. We do a lot of education around vicarious trauma and building resiliency. And we know one of those key protective factors is actually purposefulness. Like there is data that shows us when we understand our purpose, it allows us to face adversity in a way that we have a greater propensity for resiliency. So the fact you're like building that into them now is really beautiful. And I've just um, really appreciated kind of hearing how you've taken all of your experiences and you're kind of trying to leverage that and and this ripple effect of making all these other folks in the field being equipped to do this work. So I'm really deeply grateful for that. And I'll just ask as a closing question before we wrap up, Janet, what I've heard from you when I think about the impact this profession has on folks from a vicarious trauma perspective is that some of it is in the lack of understanding that the public has 
about what is expected of you. This kind of thing we talk about in our field where you don't want to talk about victimization. We don't want to talk about being a crime victim because that means we have to know what that is like. And so the unfortunate part is when it happens, we don't know what the resources are. Our families don't know because we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. It almost has this kind of corollary to me that we don't want to know what funeral services require. We don't want to have to, right? We are trying to protect ourselves by not thinking about what that is. And it creates this great disconnect of the public understanding what folks are doing to make this possible for their families in times of loss. So I'm curious, like, what would you want everyone else who doesn't understand what is expected of funeral directors, of, of those in the field, to know that would maybe help not have such a consequence on how you experience compassion fatigue, what could we know that would make your jobs a little bit easier? Oh, that's a great question. I think in a world where technology is fervently on the rise and we have consumers who are more educated than ever, who have information at their fingertips, who are becoming more demanding. Now we're, you're talking to a profession who is highly regulated by the FTC, right? We can only say, you know, this is what our price list must look like. These are the components of it. To a consumer, it might say, oh, this funeral home is trying to take advantage of me. They don't explain this. We have to put it that way due to law. There are some disconnects there that we have to abide by the law and we also have to serve our families. And I think the biggest thing is um, to show us grace and know that we are the funeral community is doing so much behind the scenes to preserve the dignity and the nobleness of this profession and um, to show us grace. And I think that if we could collaborate more and understand what the consumer wants and have the consumer understand us better, I think there's a huge opportunity there to develop more meaning in life and in death for our future. That's so beautiful. Well, I know that, that is. Yeah. I, Lindsay, is there anything you wanted to add? No, just thank you so much for your time and helping give voice to that understanding. We believe, you know, that by talking about it, it really is the the piece that sort of shines light and, and brings stories, especially those that we don't often get the chance to talk about. It really like a, a nice way to to bring it up and, and showcase the hard and incredible work that you all are doing on behalf of individuals, loved ones and for those loved ones. And so we're really grateful for you for joining us for season two of Traumatize. Um, for our listeners, as always, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review the Traumatize podcast wherever you listen. We cannot thank you enough for being with us on this journey. And we hope that you'll be joining us for the rest of the season of Untangling. Thanks so much, Janet. Thank you. This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.